Hey guys, this is Gemma from the future speaking here. Haven't had me for a while, have you? So hiya, how is everyone doing? So this week's episode, personally I'm not on it, but James did an amazing job with our guest. And our guest is very, very interesting. Um, He's got a horror background and a great find. So well done, James. Unfortunately, there was a little bit of interference with our guest's audio. A couple of pops and clicks, unfortunately. But that doesn't take away from the actual episode or the content at all. But unfortunately, it was something that we weren't able to actually get out of the actual audio. So I'm sorry about that. If this is the first time listening because of our special guest, then welcome. Thank you for joining us. And, you know, of course, if you want to click subscribe, that would be amazing as well, because us indie podcasters, we need your help. So that would be massively appreciated. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Thank you. Is what I meant to say. Not sorry. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm a bit of a nutter. So I can see why James didn't want me on this episode. So anyway, I'll stop talking now and hand over to my wonderful co-host, James, to do the introduction. Here goes. Ladies and gentlemen, grab your drinks and popcorn. Terry's feature is about to begin. Welcome to Celluloid Codswallop. Hello and welcome to this week's Celluloid Codswallop. And on this week's episode, I have a brilliant, wonderful guest. This man is, I think the term they use is like a multi-talented threat. Because th- this man, the, the amount of stuff that my guest has done is unbelievable. So if you're a fan of horror and writing and, well, anything in between, really, you're going to love this guy. So I have Mr. Mark Steamsland on as a guest Mark, thank you so much for coming on to Celluloid Codswallop. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate uh, that and the enthusiastic introduction. Uh, You're giving me an awful lot of credit. I hope I don't disappoint. (laughs) I don't think that'll be possible. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't. Uh, What I would say, Mark, is tell us how does the Mark Steensland story begin? Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Mm, okay. Um, well, I think the the story begins um, in the late 1960s, and um, I was probably three or four years old, um, and my father was an Episcopalian minister. And uh, at the time, uh, Rosemary's Baby had just been released, and it was creating a lot of um, interest in the media in these kinds of religious issues. And of course, there was a whole period, um, you know, preceding Rosemary's Baby. Part of the inspiration of Rosemary's Baby, of course, was Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan in San Francisco in 1966 and um, all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of this stuff in the media. And my dad, of course, in his job, felt that it was his job to be aware to know what these things were about and so forth. And so we all, okay. Um, So 
uh, we all went to the drive-in and yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was kind of in the, in the cultural ether, as we say. So, uh, so my dad took the whole family to the drive-in to see the movie and I have three older brothers. So, and they're much older. So because I was so young, uh, as I say, like four years old, I was put in the back of the family station wagon to go to sleep. And I was not asleep. I was awake and I was listening to every word of this movie as it was going. And so there's a moment in the film where um, the uh, the doctor says that Rosemary's due date is June 28th. And I sat up and said, that's my birthday. And uh, everybody looked at me like, you know, not only realizing he's been listening this whole time, but of course, then the fact that I had the same uh, due date as, uh, you know, our birthday, let's say, as Rosemary's Baby was, you know, also uh, a bit of fun. So I, I think, I mean, I like to think of that in a way as my origin story, so to speak, because there are so many things around what I do and my concerns that are contained in that. Um, this was at the same time that uh, the monster kid thing was going on here uh, in America, I think, especially because of monster movies had been on or on television. Uh, you had the Warren magazines like Creepy and Eerie, and you had Famous Monsters magazine and um, these uh, Aurora monster models and all this kind of stuff. And my older brother, and we shared a room, uh, he had all of that stuff. And so I was, you know, exposed to all of those things and very interested in those things. And my parents were big fans of Twilight Zone. And so when Rod Serling did the Night Gallery, and that was going to be a new show in the early 70s, they were very interested to see that. So we were watching the night gallery. And of course, you know, that had a big influence on me as well. And uh, then um, at the age of uh, when I was six in 1972, then my father died. And it was a it was a very strange experience to go from sort of being in this uh, not fantasy world exactly, but being in this place where you're reading stories that are set in cemeteries to suddenly being in a funeral parlor, you know, looking at your father's corpse, going to the cemetery and watching him be put in the ground. And and suddenly that was all very real to me in a way that it hadn't been. And I think, you know, that really kind of uh, made it um, – really had a big impact on me because of that particular mix. And uh, so then a couple of years after my father had died and my mom was kind of, um, you know, she started dating this other guy who was a theater owner. And uh, part of what we did was go to the movies because that's what this guy, that was his job was as, as a movie theater manager. And so I was seeing all these movies that were wildly inappropriate for me to see, um, you know, as a, I don't know, probably this was in 74, 1974. So I was nine. Um, Legend of Hell House, 
um, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, um, the Elizabeth Taylor uh, version of Night Watch. I think that's what it's called. Um, and, you know, and so on. And so I was seeing these movies. And of course, I was loving them. And um, and then also loving all of the behind the scenes at the movie theater stuff that I got to see. So I got to go up in the projection booth and, you know, got to see all the posters and, um, you know, behind the snack bar, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, all of that then really kind of got me into the movies, especially. And I really became interested in behind the scenes and in the process of creation and um and so that is then i think where the path really solidified and in uh, 1970 well let's see it was that 1975 maybe and i saw phantom of the paradise and that was the first movie that i went to see multiple times at the theater i mean i went back again and again and again to watch that movie over and i just i was really in love with just the whole experience of you know movies the particular kind of movie uh and really wanting to do that so and that's been what i've been doing really in one way or another ever since then and is that what you is that always something from being that young that you thought that's the industry i want to get into or was there anything that you ever so I could maybe look at something else. Or was it always so like you've been really laser focused on that? Yeah, I mean, for a little while, uh, I was very into magic. Uh, when Doug Henning had his uh, specials on here in America, he had a, a, a show that was in broad on Broadway um, or at a theater on Broadway. And and he was very successful, really uh, a huge bump in interest in stage magic um in the early 70s and i got very into magic also and i actually i mean i had a little brush with doing it professionally uh when i was in junior high school i did some boy scout shows and you know some stuff like that um and i i mean i was kind of considering that but um which interestingly isn't far from making movies you know i was gonna say (laughs) yeah that that is exactly what i was thinking because With magic, you're doing something that entertains people and people don't know how it's done. And mm-hmm. in a sense, it's exactly the same yeah. thing with films yeah, and, yeah. and that sort of area. Yeah, so you yeah. Can, you can, I can kind of see how <laughs> how it all pulled together for you. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. So who would you say was the – oh, well, I'm actually not going to – I don't want to skip – I was going to skip ahead with that, but it, it, the way I'm going to ask you probably wouldn't work so well. So – you this is the one that Gemma was desperate for me to ask you about okay. <laughs> so you worked on george a romero's dawn of the dead <laughs> uh on day of the dead um Sorry. yes dead. yeah and um so i didn't actually work on it so uh but i'll tell you the story of what that is which is i think okay. what you're what you're wondering um so and it kind of ties into what was happening with me as I was developing, you know, this other stuff that I was doing, because I was reading all these magazines like Fangoria and Cinefantastique and uh, Preview and uh, because I was so interested in all the behind the scenes stuff, American Cinematographer. uh, And 
as I was reading all of those magazines, I I would think to myself, well, I want to ask these questions. These these reporters or these people aren't asking these questions. And uh, and so I got the idea that I could be a journalist myself. Why not? And uh, and I could get on to talking to these filmmakers and I could go on movie sets and all of these kinds of things. And so I created my own little uh, kind of journal fanzine. And uh, and I got on the phone. Of course, this is long before there were computers or even cellular phones or anything. And I I figured out how to call information in Los Angeles. I figured out how to call a movie studio and I call up and I say, I want to talk to John Carpenter. And they would say one moment and they would put me through to the production office and they would answer production. I, I want to talk to John Carpenter. You know, well, who are you? Um, and uh but they said, you need to talk to the unit publicist. And this I learned through this kind of trial and error of how that process worked and soon learned to call and instead say, I need to know who the unit publicist is on such and such a film, and I need to talk to them. And then I would get in touch with that person and I would say, you know, this is who I am and so on. And so I had developed... Um, these things for my fanzine, but some of the unit publicists were like, okay, but I mean, this isn't really, you know, this isn't anything that's being distributed widely. If you really want to come on a movie set and we're going to devote that kind of time and energy, you have to get into a real magazine, you know? And so then I started calling the real magazines and, uh, and the first one that I convinced was American cinematographer and uh, convinced them to send me to Arizona uh, to interview Don Morgan, who was the cinematographer on John Carpenter's Starman. And so mm -hmm. that was the first movie set that I visited. I was 18 years old and, um, you know, drove to Arizona from California and spent a couple of days there watching, filming and interviewing Don and so on. I wrote the article and submitted it to them. And they said, no, this doesn't work for us. And the unit publicist was not very happy about that because, you know, we had spent all this time and energy and now there wasn't going to be a published piece. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went to Jim Steranko at Preview Magazine. He had that magazine at the time. And I said, I have this thing that I did. And, you know, would you be interested in the article? And he said, you know, Yes, but you've got to do it in our style. And so I rewrote the whole thing according to their style. He loved it, published it, and um, and that was my first professional publication. Well, Stranko liked what I did so much and knew, you know, that this is what I was into, that he started working with me to get me to places. And one of those things was he called me up and said, uh, Romero's doing Day of the Dead and uh, the press junket is all the reporters are going to go to the set for the weekend and they're going to make you up as zombies and put you in the movie. That was, you know, kind of the, the gimmick, so to speak, for the press. So, yeah, I mean, I was living in upstate New York at the time I was in college <clears throat> and um, got flown to uh, Pittsburgh and uh, with all of these other journalists, Uncle Bob 
uh, Martin from uh, Fangoria was there, Don mm-hmm. Farmer from Splatter Times, uh, Tom Allen from The Village Voice, of course, who his review, which you know, uh, is largely responsible for the success of John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, and you know, all these other people. And, uh, so there we were and we got, uh, made up as zombie and, uh, and then had the opportunity to interview George and the rest of the crew and all of that. And, uh, the articles that I wrote out of that experience, I think Steranko, we put them across like three different issues or something, you know, so he got a lot of mileage out of that and uh but that's the story of how i got into day of the dead specifically but you know as a journalist and so other things that i did for steranko i went to london uh for a week and uh was uh for on the set of legend for a minute um on the set of uh the bride if i don't know if you remember that movie with sting and mm-hmm. jennifer beals yeah yeah um, know you know, was at Pinewood interviewing Jeanneau Swark when he was making, I think he was making Santa Claus. Um, and uh, on the Bond set, I was on the set of uh, A View to a Kill. I watched him blow up Grace Jones and, you know, got to <laughs> interview Roger Moore and um, and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I mean, it was uh, and it was really a very obviously a very powerful experience to go through, to have those opportunities, to visit those sets, to see all this stuff firsthand at that level. And, um, and then to have these publication credits. And so, uh, you know, I did that for a long time and uh, it was never like fully my job. It was always just because I wanted to do that. And um, you know, when Carpenter was making escape from LA I was like, well, I want to go, you know, do something on that and see what they're up to. And so got Electronic Musician Magazine to say yes to a piece on them scoring. And I went down and and spent the day in the recording studio while they were recording the score for that film and interviewed John. I've interviewed Carpenter a number of different times. But, you know, anyhow, so. Yeah, that's the long story of that whole side of uh, of my experience. I, I want to ask one because you told me something I had no idea on because I'm oh. a, a big <laughs> Bond fan. Oh, okay. So, and and I've interviewed a few people who've been involved with Bond. Yes. Um, I've never had the and I was never look. I've I've seen Roger Moore at things, but I was never lucky enough to speak to him. But what was it like? Because I've never been on a Bond set. But what was it like being on? Uh, well it was amazing uh we were at um you know it was the location it was the amberley chalk pits uh which was the uh the exterior portion of that you know the underground supposedly in the silicon valley where he's Mm -hmm. plant you know planted all the bombs and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and um and so uh you know roger moore at the time uh, you know, I'm watching them film something and it's like he comes running out onto something and cut and then he goes to his trailer and then here come the, you know, the stunt doubles to do everything else. And so I went into the trailer to to interview him and, uh, you know, I mean, look, I was 19 years old 
And uh, I was not a professional journalist. And I'm, I, I am sure that these publicists who saw me and were watching me do what I was doing were thinking, you know, oh, my God, how did this kid get into this position? What the heck is happening here? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like my first question to Roger Moore is why bond again? And and his answer is. <laughs> His answer is, it stops me from robbing banks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so and you remember at the time um, that there had been the controversy or the, you know, the difficulties around the, the rights to the Bond character yeah. and that other group had gotten the opportunity to do Never Say Never Again with Sean Connery. Yeah. And so um, I was very curious, of course, about you know, how they all felt about that and, and so on. And so I was working up to that and I said something about, uh, I think one of my questions was something like, you know, are you going to, uh, are you going to be in the next one or something? And he said, Roger Moore said, I'll never say never again. And, uh, the publicist said, all right, we've had quite enough now. <laughs> mm, so that was like, <laughs> and that yeah. was, you know, that was really it. I got, um, you know, uh, escorted out uh, of the trailer and uh, saw Cubby Broccoli arriving in his Rolls Royce to, you know, I don't know, do something. And um, anyhow, but I mean, yeah, it was uh, it was all, all a great deal of fun. I mean, of course, going on all of those fantastic sets and, um, you know, lots and lots of really cool stuff. Um, I covered uh, Big Trouble in Little China for American Cinematographer, and it was uh, Dean Cundy's um, first film as a member of the uh, of the ASC. And so it was the cover story. And I spent uh, several days on set, um, you know, watching all kinds of super cool stuff. Um, and, you know, just uh, again, it's it was all all of it was really a lot of fun, a lot of a lot of great stuff. I mean, one of my favorite stories, and I don't want to get too long-winded here. We've hardly got started, I feel like, but no. uh, but one of my favorite it's all good. <laughs> one of my favorite stories is a very um, probably not a well-known film called uh, Wanted Dead or Alive, which starred Rucker Hauer as a good guy and Gene Simmons as a terrorist. And uh, Rucker Hauer's character is obviously trying to catch Gene Simmons, you know, from Kiss, from the rock band Kiss. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, trying to catch him uh, with what he's doing, all his bad stuff. And I, I got to interview Gene Simmons and he told me that um, that Rucker Hauer and he would try to psych each other out before they would film, like, you know, growl at each other and, you know, and threaten to kill each other and all that kind of stuff to really amp up the energy. And he said this, they kept doing this and doing this. He said one time Rucker Hauer reached out, grabbed him on both sides of the head, pulled him in and kissed him full on the mouth and pushed him away. And Gene Simmons said, that was it. I couldn't look at him. I couldn't look him in the eye for the rest of the time. <laughs> It takes some balls <laughs> to grab the demon, to right. get, you know, from kiss and kiss, right. you know, and kissing. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it certainly, you know, ended the battle, proved who the uh, who the winner was, and 
Um, so yeah, I love that. And I love that Gene Simmons actually told me that story, you know, knowing I was a journalist and that uh, that's where it would end up. You know, it says a lot about him uh, as well. So anyway, but all, all kinds of really fun stuff. We could talk for a long time about all those kinds of things. I'm going to ask you though about, because one of the things, because like, you were in Escapes. With oh, right. And I was curious about that one, how that all came about. Uh, yeah, that's my brother's movie. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. right. Yeah. So my older brother, the one who was into all the monster stuff, um, was also interested in filmmaking. And he had uh, he'd made a couple of shorts. And, you know, this was again, this was back in the uh, in the film days. You know, there wasn't any stuff happening digitally. Uh, you know, people weren't shooting on video and and so on. And so um he was making some shorts and uh, he got the idea of, of putting them together as an anthology. And he knew that he needed some kind of name to on the video box, you know, to get a distributor to agree to to take the film on and so on. And so, uh, of course, great idea, Vincent Price. And what a name. Yeah, what a exactly, name to go exactly. with. Yeah. Right, right. And so he had a meeting with uh, with Vincent Price, who said, um, there's no way I'm going to do this if it's going to be graveyards and spooky mansions and all that kind of stuff. I'm not doing that. And so my brother came up with this very abstract kind of idea where uh, he was in this a set that was uh, – very different. It had these arms and things coming out of the walls and all kinds of stuff. And Vincent Price loved it. And that's why he agreed to, you know, to do it. I mean, he certainly didn't need money, um, you know, so uh, but he then agreed to do it. And he had a part in it, of course, also as the the postman who delivers the video to, that is the then. Yeah. yeah, right. That's the framing device and so on. So, um, but at the time I uh, had found a guy locally who was a makeup artist and the episode that I'm in where I play the creature, then we needed, you know, my brother needed a makeup artist to pull off this, uh, the costume and stuff. And so we started working with that guy and we found somebody else and, you know, all of that kind of got put together and then I was cast uh, as the creature because, you know, well, it fit and, and so forth. They did. Um, there were some substantial changes to that particular episode and they had to go back and do some other shooting. And um, and I think that they I think they got somebody else to play the creature for part of some of that stuff. It's been forever since I've seen it. And, um, you know, but anyhow, so, yeah, that's the story on that one. And I'm going to, again, indulge myself, yes. um, <laughs> which is I've got to ask you about Mannequin, oh. which I know, <laughs> I know I know you'll think, well, hang on. You know, James has mentioned he likes horror and he wants yeah. to talk to me about horror. I love Mannequin. Oh, a lot I absolutely of people do. love that yeah. film. Yeah, a lot, of people, a lot of people. What do. can you tell me about that? Because. Um, so I, as I mentioned, uh, that I was in upstate New York going to college at, um, at Ithaca college, which is in Ithaca, New York, same town as Cornell. And, um, and so, uh, 
I had been there for a year and I was interested in transferring to a school in California. I couldn't afford to be in New York anymore. And, uh, and so as part of what I was going to do for the transition, um, they had an amazing internship program because uh, Michael Nathanson, uh, who is an executive, um, had uh, been had attended Ithaca College and he had these great connections. He was then working at a company called Gladden Entertainment, which was run by David Beagleman, who was a Columbia, you know, former Columbia Studios executive. Uh, and and so the internship opportunity was to go to work at Gladden Entertainment. And uh, and so I got the internship and moved to Los Angeles um, and then went to work for Gladden. And the first thing that I did for them was uh, working as a script reader. And then they had these movies going into production. They were um, they uh, mannequin was one of them. Um, Emilio Estevez's first film as director, uh, which was called Wisdom, uh, was another film that they were making. And and so then the opportunity was to go to work on mannequin in the production office. And so uh, they put that together The you know, early in the process, it's the unit production manager and the production coordinator. And then and of course, the director and producer. But then they go through the pre-production process of putting the whole crew together and, you know, figuring out the locations and all of those kinds of things. So I got in. I was then hired first as an intern. And then when the internship ended, I had the opportunity to continue my employment, basically, with the production. And I was on the movie, I think, close to 23 weeks, um, you know, through all of this process working with them and uh and then uh i got into a different school and i had a little window where i wasn't going to be at school and i was going to be kind of done with mannequin and they were shooting wisdom in sacramento where uh, my family uh, was and i knew the town very well and so i told the the guys on that crew hey you know, I'm from Sacramento. I know all that stuff. And they said, well, you're hired then. And I got hired um, as uh, lead and swing gang. Oh, good. Yes. It's yeah. going to be that easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So I was lead and swing gang on um, wisdom, which means you load in all the stuff to locations, you dress the locations, they come in and shoot, and then you tear all that stuff down, you know, out of the location and move it to another place. And so, um, yeah, so I was on that movie, uh, and then after they were done filming, then I went, uh, you know, to my new school. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was on all of that early stuff in, on Mannequin, uh, you know, casting Andrew McCarthy and casting Kim Cattrall and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, Um um, I was not on any of the filming. Uh, they shot it in Philadelphia. So, you know, we I was up to the point where the crew loaded everything on the trucks and and everybody went to Philadelphia to shoot the movie. And then that's when I went on to to wisdom. Because like on production stuff as well, if I've got this right, you also were involved with Midnight Run. Is that, is uh, that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um 
So I was working, uh, I was working as a delivery driver. And the interesting thing was I, I had had uh, through Glad Entertainment, I had met a guy at a big agency, a creative artist agency. And he was a really young guy. He was like an up and coming agent. You know, that's what he wanted to do. And we talked and I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a director and stuff. And so he's like, what do you got? You know, and I sent him something. He was super enthusiastic about it. I had a meeting over there. I got a meeting at John Davis, who had an office at Fox at the time. Nothing ever came of it. But, you know, I had a relationship with this agent for that brief period of time. And so ironically, then this is probably uh, this is a few years later. Then I was making a delivery as a delivery driver to creative artists. And when I went in, there was this agent and he said, Mark tell me this isn't true. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I got to pay the bills. Right. And he's like, I think I've got something for you. And he called me up the next day and he said, uh, Marty breasts assistant is leaving the production. They just got back from shooting. He's looking for a new assistant. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, of course. And so I went and met with Marty and, and, uh, and his assistant, um, and you know his other assistant and ended up getting hired for uh for that job and so i was on post-production of midnight run through that whole process so again i didn't see any of the filming but mm -hmm. all through editorial and the sound mix and release and then i worked for marty a little bit um after that as he was kind of looking at what he was going to do next and so on and then um, I stopped working for him for a little while. I ended up going back <clears throat> later um, as a script reader and then, <clears throat> you know, and then uh, left again. But, um, yeah, great experience as well. Yeah, very interesting. Because you kind of you've almost answered a question I was wondering about is how much does a production crew get to involve itself with filming it seems like you're very much divided from that you might you, you're you're there to almost do the heavy lifting of getting everything in place well it and just then, yeah i mean it just depends on what part you're in uh i mean i could have gone on to you know uh like on mannequin i could have accompanied them to philadelphia and been the production assistant on set um, you know, it was just what was else, what else was going on with my schedule. And then again, like on wisdom, uh, you know, yeah, very much obviously involved with the filming there, but in the role where, you know, you have this other thing to do. Um, obviously when they came to our set that we had dressed, you know, to shoot there, then that's what we were doing, you know, that day. And then, uh, obviously going on to other things. So, yeah, I mean, it just really kind of depends on what you are doing. Had I stayed with Marty, uh, you know, I would have been involved with all of the shooting and stuff. I mean, the guy that replaced me, uh, was obviously very involved with all those things. He stayed with Marty for a couple of movies. So. Um, you know, just kind of depends. But of course, you made a shift to then starting to do your own stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's, it's a bit of a. I've, I've got the, I don't want people to think it happened immediately because you obviously had to do things in between. Yeah. Um, what was the sort of bridging thing? What? Yeah. 
Um, Working for others and making the decision, I want to, you know, do this myself. Sort of like the the brass ring, as they say. Sure, sure. I mean, I always wanted to do it myself. And, um, you know, it's it's just such a difficult and challenging uh, thing. And uh, especially when you're trying to do it at the studio level. I mean, as I had that little brush with it, um, you know, I mean, that could have if I had sold that script to John Davis, you know, obviously we'd be having a different conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, so going through that and, and, um, seeing how things worked and, um, and then I got the idea of, um, trying to do something myself and mostly as a way of like trying to say, here's what, one of my scripts might look like, you know? Um, so I had experimented with uh, some little things, but uh, one of the first things that I did was the, was the feature was the last way out, which I did in um, 97. And um, that was, uh, I was working for a production company, a local production company who uh, produced uh, television commercials and training videos and stuff like that. So I was there and, um, had, you know, all this equipment and that's what I was doing for my day job was I was going out and shooting the, I was writing the training programs. I was going out, I was producing and shooting them and then I was editing them and, uh, you know, and so on. And so saying to the guy, you know, I want to use this equipment to do a feature and him saying, okay, so, uh, but at the time, this is still in the, the period where stuff wasn't being shot on video. You know, the, what was being shot on video was pornography. And, um, and so I didn't have the money to do film. Uh, and, you know, I raised an incredibly low budget. I raised $10,000 and uh, got some local actors uh, from you know, I found I went to every stage show that was in town and cast from the stage. Um, I had this very small crew, of course, people that I worked with at the production company. And and we did it. I when I think back on it now, I just I have no idea how we even pulled it off. Um, but uh, I made it, we shot on Betacam, which is this very expensive uh, video camera, uh, you know, super top quality at the time, of course. And, and so in order to kind of try to, you know, combat the video feel, we processed it. I made it black and white. It was a noir kind of story anyway. You know, I love White. Uh, the Big Heat is one of my favorite movies, one of my top 10 favorite films. And so I was really going for that kind of a thing. It wasn't a period piece, but I wanted it to feel in a way like it was. And so, you know, I did all of that. And um, and then when I tried to get distribution, it was what did you shoot it on video? Click, you know. That wow. was, yeah, that was really, that was the end of it. You know, there was like no, like I said, there was no respect for that as a process in feature filmmaking. <clears throat> and um, so, you know, that was disappointing, of course. Um, and it was a few years later 
that I went to work um, for a big uh, video distribu- distribution company, we sold movies to video stores. So we had mm-hmm. Blockbuster Video, Hollywood Video, and then all these independent video stores. And they would call us up and order X number of copies of this movie. And this was still, you know, this was in the VHS days. DVD hadn't happened yet. And um, and so the distribution company found out that I had this movie and they were like, you know, what do you think about us selling it? And I said, that's amazing. Let's do it. And so we did this whole thing and and uh, sold it for a, a low cost compared to the other movies. And the sales group did an amazing job. And I ended up uh, doubling the investors money and, um, you know, got it into video stores all over the country. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was one of those things. I mean, I, of course, I was trying to get it somewhere before that. One of my favorite stories is that um, I used to read Joe Bob Briggs had a syndicated column yep. and mm-hmm. um, at the time in the late 90s. And I got the San Francisco Chronicle was my paper and his column was in that paper every Saturday. <clears throat> and. I would read it to my wife every week and uh, we would laugh about it, you know, and all that. And I had sent him my movie and I had quoted him in my movie. Okay. Like one of my characters says, if you know what I mean, and I think you do, which was one of his favorite phrases to use in his column. And, uh, and so I sent him the movie and I didn't hear anything. And I opened up the paper and, Sorry, it's just it's one of those strangely emotional things. Uh, But I opened up the paper. I started reading the column to my wife. And the first part of it is this whole story about some other characters, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it says, and speaking of packages in the mail, Mark Steensland, the one man film industry of Sacramento, sent me his movie The Last Way Out, you know, and he goes on to review my movie. And I didn't even know that this was going to happen. I was so dumbfounded and he mentioned of course you know one of the characters quotes him and he quotes from the best you know and uh you know he gave me a great rating and um and it was it was one of the things that ended up on the box art of course because uh you know when we sold it to stores and all that kind of stuff so i mean it ended up being this strange success in spite of itself in a lot of ways Um, And it was while I was there that I met, I was very fascinated by Phil Dick. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, uh, and I, one of my customers knew a person who knew Phil personally was involved with Phil personally. And I was like, you know, Hey, maybe we could get a documentary going. And, um, you know, could you talk to this person and see if they would be interested? And sure enough, they were. And so then I started like kind of putting that together and the fascinating thing is, is that we shot Gospel According to PKD on video also, and not one distributor asked uh, what we shot on because the Blair Witch Project had come out in between. And, uh, you know, Blair Witch Project made $100 million or whatever it was, and half that movie is shot on video and they had a theatrical release. And so the, 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 the culture in feature filmmaking was definitely shifting. 
And um, I got a theatrical release on PKD. We played in New York. We played in San Francisco. We played in uh, Chicago and in Cleveland um, theatrically, you know, I mean, in movie theaters yeah. uh, and got reviewed in the New York Times and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the movie is not liked. Uh, it's got. Oh, uh, I get well, I, I yeah, I, I thank you. And, um, you know, of course, I liked it. I mean, we had nothing. We had no resources. No one would cooperate um, except the people who did. Uh, you know, so it was very we were very hampered by lots of things, but I wanted to do it. And so we did it. I mean, to be fair, you know, a sci fi channel uh, was doing their first film festival in this was in 2001 and uh we had gotten into usa today um a profile of us making this film was in usa today sci-fi channel called us up and said we want a world premiere at you know at our film festival and unfortunately it wasn't able to go to that um and uh also i was supposed to be at a screening in seattle and uh but planes were grounded because of 9-11 um you know that had just happened and so uh anyway but yeah i mean you you know we did it and uh, it was for a time of course it was the only thing about phil that was like that Mm -hmm. other than a british program i think it's called arena or something that had done an episode on phil yeah yeah and they had be arena yeah yeah, they had some footage of him and we couldn't get access to that. That's why I had to animate him. And, um, you know, of course, with no budget, then, you know, we were using flash animation. Um, and uh, but, you know, I mean, look, the choice is do it or don't do it. I choose do it. Yeah. So, you know, for better or worse. No, exactly. I mean, I, I completely agree with you on the, the do it or don't do it thing because yeah. you create a documentary that, okay, so some people, you said, you know, you said some people don't like it. Some yeah. people think I'm one of the people who does. <laughs> but the reality is, if you're not going to do it, and you see this with other documentaries, hell, I mean, you've seen it now with this conversation. If I had not reached out to speak to you yeah. to see if you wanted to do it, we wouldn't right. be here now discussing it. Right. You've got to take the steps to do it. You've got to make it happen. And you also, you kind of made it happen. You made it for, for you directed a show which creeped the hell out of me. <laughs> I loved it, but it called Sucker. Oh, okay. Um, oh, wow. Okay. It, it made me think, I mean, it made me think of Ted Bundy quite a bit. <laughs> and, and when I'm watching, I'm thinking, yeah, this is definitely not going to end well, is it? But... <laughs> <laughs> what 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 was the, the the drive behind getting that one uh made um so uh after you know when i was working in video distribution and um i was getting very uh i was getting very burnt out and you know not having a lot of time to do the creative work and stuff and i knew that i needed to make some kind of a shift And um, so I got this idea of teaching and uh, I applied for a teaching position, one teaching one class at a college that was a little over an hour away from uh, where I was living at the time. And I got hired for that class uh, for that job. And uh, I went and taught for that semester and they asked me back and they gave me another class. And 
I really had an affinity for um, for doing that. And uh, and of course, teaching film, then even better. Right. Because I'm doing what I want to do in the the classroom. And uh, and so then I really started pursuing that as a full time thing and ended up getting hired at a university in Southern California. And um, and then ultimately got hired at uh, Penn State, uh, at a Penn State campus in uh, Pennsylvania. And I was the person in charge of the whole production side of things inside the communication program. So I was the film guy. So I taught everything. I taught all the production classes. I was in charge of the labs. I was, uh, I was in charge of the equipment budget, all of that stuff. And I was like, I hear I have access to all of this and I have students who, you know, they're doing their stuff, but why not? Let's see if they, some of them want to do stuff, you know, in addition to class. And so I started trying to put together ideas that I thought uh, would make interesting short films. And to be honest with you, I don't, I can't think of, specifically what the the genesis of sucker was um other than probably the idea of you know the twist right the the idea that (laughs) that the guy (laughs) kidnaps the girl who then is the one who is getting him and um and so you know wrote the script and obviously all of the production experience that I had with the company in Sacramento and I worked with them for quite a while made that part of it relatively easy you know go find actors who are willing to do it and put the crew together and I had the equipment obviously and so that started that was the first thing that I did um of that series of short films that I made when I was in Erie Pennsylvania so it was sucker and it was um, Dead at 17, and it was um, Peekers, and The oh, Ugly God File. Peekers. Yeah, <laughs> and The Ugly File, and um, The Weeping Woman. And we tried, we were starting to get into, um, I was trying to take us to the feature level. And, you know, I was trying to transition into making features, because all of those short films were obviously going to, festivals and winning awards and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so um there were a couple of projects that uh almost got off the ground and but ended up uh being you know not not happening um for one reason or another and uh and then i stopped teaching at penn state and we moved back to california which is uh you know where i am now and because where I'm teaching now, I don't have access to any of that production stuff. I am more at this college. Um, I, I teach screenwriting and I teach film studies and so on. And I really, I mean, production is rough, man. I mean, yeah. production is, it is not for the squeamish. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a writer more than anything. And so when we came back here, that's when I really shifted gears, especially to focusing on trying to to be the writer and to get the the scripts produced by other people. And that's been working, you know, pretty well so far. So um, so hopefully that's the direction this is really going to go in now. I mean, I will direct again, but it's Mm got to be under 
it's got to be under my conditions. Everything that I've ever done, I have had final cut over every piece of it. I've had complete autonomy. And, um, you know, I just don't want to get into doing something where I don't have that. So if the conditions are right, again, I would certainly do it. But, um, you know, anyway, so focus on the writing. But yeah, that's where that's where Sucker came from. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like it a lot. I think it's really uh, yeah. effective. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's, <laughs> yeah, the twist will get you. I mean, the other one that I'll just say on Peakers, uh, it's brilliant, but if you're watching it like I was on your own at home in the dark, it's a little bit unnerving. I'm going to yeah. be honest, you find yourself looking over your shoulder quite a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, and the ugly file was just that. I, God, that was good. I, I mean, think. seriously. The, yeah, I can't, the ugly file, it was. It had very, it felt very Twilight Zone mm-hmm. in its style. Yeah. But I just, yeah, uh, that was, I mean, the, the short stuff you've done, I've never, ever been disappointed by any of it. It's oh, been oh, really thanks. good stuff. Oh, thanks. And the, uh, and the Weeping Woman, I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm like, that's Stephen <laughs> Jeffrey. <laughs> yes. I was like, yeah. and of course, in my head, I've got the You're So Cool Brewster. Yeah, line, right. Of course, of course. <clears throat> Unfortunately for me, when I'm watching that, I, uh, and there's, there's certain things that happen in it, I can relate to having incidents driving on icy roads. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, God, that was wow. Yeah, the yeah, thanks. woman. Yeah, thanks. Brilliant stuff. Absolutely brilliant. So, yeah. the special is a film that that very interesting sort of issues of things that would happen with regard to marriages and affairs, but it went far far darker <laughs> than you would ever expect yeah um, what was kind of the process how what can you tell us about the story and the process of bringing that to, to screen please yeah sure um so uh that was one of the things that i tried to make with the group of actors that i was working with in pennsylvania so the people who had been in peakers and the ugly file um that that batch of people, they were the ones that I was trying to get the special off the ground with, and um, and we got fairly far, um, and we had some other interesting. I was at the Erie Horror Fest. I was the vice president of the Erie Horror Film Festival um, at the time, and so we had all these special guests all the time, and of course. You know, that's where Stephen Jeffries came from uh, for The Weeping Woman. He was a guest at the Horror Fest. I met him. I said, would you be interested in possibly, you know, doing a short with me? Um, And he said yes. And, you know, we worked out all of the obviously the the details um, to make that happen. Um, But Tony Todd was a guest uh, and he loved the special. He was going to play. We just couldn't get the budget together. Um, But the genesis of the story had had happened much earlier and um i had i had this idea originally the story was uh that these that the creature was an alien and it was supposed to be like a tribble um from star trek and that is that whenever you had sex with the thing it turned into two creatures And so it was going to be this alien invasion thing where there was this place in Las Vegas where people go 
and you know they have sex with these creatures they don't know that that's what they're doing and when they multiply the people at the you know at the place kill the other creatures to stop them from multiplying and when the guy steals one and goes back to his place and is doing it and he's then they're multiplying then that's when it gets out of control and it was going to be this whole alien invasion scenario and i i knew that was just too big um you know if i had any hopes of doing the movie myself that was too big and so i had to make it a smaller and i had to reduce it to the story of the guy and yeah. what he was going through uh, on a very individual level and um and so uh and then you know if you're doing that then the whole alien thing doesn't really work it doesn't it's not part of that story and so i really was struggling with how do i end it and uh and then when i came up with that idea for the ending um and you know i mean largely i've got to give the credit to pumpkinhead frankly um you know because it uses a very similar sort of structure i mean it is telling a very similar kind of story it's not about addiction in the same sense it's about revenge obviously um you know and the danger of revenge and so forth and the cycle of revenge and so that was certainly part of it the other thing that uh gets a lot of credit for the genesis of it is um there was a, a law enforcement f- a group here in uh, in Oregon, um, Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, and they were recognizing this is when methamphetamine was just tearing through populations, and and they were recognizing these people who were addicted to methamphetamine, and they were getting arrested repeatedly, and their mug shots were like this record of their deterioration and I've seen them the, the, yeah the, the sort of shots you get and it's yeah. just unbelievable you yeah. see this person looking healthy and then holy crap <laughs> at the end of the run it's like are they human still yeah. yes and so i was fascinated by the fact that you know horrified by that but also fascinated by the fact that somebody would continue to engage in a behavior that is so clearly doing this to them and um, and so that was part of what I wanted to recreate in the special is that this guy is going to keep doing that, even though this is what's happening to his body. Um, oh, by the way, one of the other casting bits that I tried to get was um, I tried to get David Cronenberg to play the doctor. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and we got pretty far uh, with that, unfortunately, of course. I mean, again, you know, I didn't make the movie, so unfortunately, none of that came about. But anyway, a nod to Cronenberg. Of course, I'm a huge Cronenberg fan, and that's certainly a part of it as well. So all of that kind of went together. And uh, originally, we tried to get it on uh, a series that was happening at the time called Masters of Horror. And um, I've seen that. Yeah, I yeah. know that. Yep. Yeah. And so we had a strong connection to Masters of Horror, to one of the producers, writers and stuff. And so we had written an hour long version of the special and we were trying to get it onto that. You know, And so they were already full for season one and then they already had picked season two. 
and oh, it looked like a possibility for season three, and then it got taken off of cable and put on network as Fear Itself. And of course, you know, you try to rewrite the special as a network show, and it doesn't work at all. You can't show anything or do anything. And so uh, then I said, well, let's do it as a feature. So we expanded the script then um, to feature length. And that's when we tried to, to do it ourselves. Didn't work out. So a guy who I had worked with, um, makeup artist who did the special effects and the ugly file and uh, the makeups and Weeping Woman and so forth, had was working with this guy who ultimately script for the special because Mark had been involved with some of the pre-production, you know, stuff. And so Bruce, um, or I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, his name is Bruce. Uh, he got very interested. He read the script and he's like, I really want to make this. And I was like, okay, well, you know, let me know when you have the budget and time went by. And then I got a call and he's like, okay, we've got the budget and we're ready to go. So, um, you know, let's do this. And so, they uh, ended up making a movie, and uh, I thought they did a really, really great job, um, you know, considering uh, their resources and so forth. And I, I, I'm not just saying that. I completely agree. It's a bloody good film. <laughs> Thanks. So it's a bloody good film. Now, I, I like the fact that we're looking at one issue in the special to do with marriages, and then I, I want to ask you about another one, that another <laughs> film that you're involved with that takes – a very interesting look at uh, marriage, which is Jacob's wife. Mm-hmm. And to just my own sort of thing, I remember seeing the trail and thinking, holy crap, this is good. <laughs> and then thankfully, when I saw the film, I wasn't burned. What you wrote has a, it looks at a marriage and all the different complexities and problems coming to a marriage when people have been married for a long time, coupled with what could happen in a marriage where it's someone who's a minister and his wife. And you put a brilliant twist on it with <laughs> the fact there's vampire, vampirism in it. Vampirism in it. Yeah. Just out of interest, because you were saying that your father had been involved with the church. Was that did that have any influence on the the characters you wrote within? Oh the yeah. Wife? Oh for sure. I mean, almost all of my stuff has <clears throat> has a minister character. Um, you know, lots of things that haven't been produced yet <clears throat> have characters that are ministers good and bad you know so um yeah it's a big it's a big influence when that's your life you know so um so yeah i'm drawing from that of course um so yeah i mean that i've got to give credit to to barbara crampton the producer Mm -hmm. obviously and to travis stevens the director uh because they really took it into the direction that you're talking about more than what was in my original screenplay. And, you know, Barbara was very attracted to the, to the script. Um, and what happened with that is that I won top prize at the Shriekfest uh, Film Festival back in 2015. And I knew that the director of the festival, Denise Gossett, knew Barbara Crampton and that was right when Barbara was kind of coming back onto the scene. She had been in your next, um, cause you know, she'd been retired for years. And so she came back with your next and I loved that movie. And I saw that she was kind of getting back into stuff. And so I said, Denise, can you help me get this to Barbara? She'd be perfect for this part. 
And so Denise helped me do that. And Barbara read it and immediately fell in love with it and said, I'm also getting into producing. So, you know, I want to take this on as producer. And um, and then we went through a very long process, obviously, of all of the difficulties of getting something together, excuse me, of getting something together and making it, you know, so there were all kinds of ups and downs through that whole process. But, um, you know, to my original screenplay was uh, definitely about the couple facing the fact that the wife is turning into a vampire. And um, mine was a little more focused on Jacob trying to find the master to kill the master to save his wife. And, um, you know, obviously, Barbara, as producer and star, was more interested in amplifying the the female side, you know, her character's story. And so creating all of the stuff that uh, happened prior to her being bitten and uh, and bringing that into the story in that way. And so all of that stuff was in my script, obviously, um, you know, from the standpoint of this relationship and the older characters and so on. I mean, that was why Barbara was attracted to it. And she said, there's just not stuff that's written for older actors, you know, older characters in the starring position, you know, it just, it's not something that happens. And, and I love that. I yeah. love that in the script that you're actually seeing, because I remember sitting watching, I was thinking, how refreshing is it that you're seeing a, a couple who have been married a long time? <laughs> they're not like some, I mean, half the time now you see people who were supposed to be teenagers, you know, it's either t- got a psycho old man, don't <laughs> but it's either something to be teenagers or it's people who uh, people who are in the twenties or you know twilight sexy vampires. Do not get me started on that. Yeah. Um. And I'm looking. I'm thinking you've got a script with a couple who are the, the they're an established couple. It's it 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 is looking at life and showing what happens and how people are feeling because when the film kind of started. The, the the married but it's not this it's not perfect is it it's no which is the other thing i loved it's not like the usual hollywood fairy tale hey everyone's great <laughs> we all look great we're gonna shoot some of them through vaseline so they look yeah young. it's real it, this is real and you could see a relatability to it and i thought that was just brilliant yeah i really did yeah, and I mean, and again, credit to um, and to the other writer, Kathy Charles, again for everything that everybody brought to to the finished version and to telling that particular story and um, you know and doing it in the way that they that they did. Um, and yeah, all of those things again, I think uh, very successful. And it's nice to see the really great response, of course, that it has gotten. And, um, you know, again, credit to Barbara for for what she was able to do. And I love that she had this great role. um, And, you know, that the again, that the response has been so positive to all of the elements that we've been talking about. So, yeah, for sure. One of the the lines that always still sticks in my head is when she's going shopping. 
And she goes to like the meat count and she's going, where can I get more of this? And the guy's like, blood? Yeah. <laughs> you want the blood? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun. It has a... It, Oh, not to give anything away, but the blood has a uh, an interesting impact on it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it's one of the films. It, it doesn't happen with me a lot, but there are films where I get really drawn in and then you're like, wow, it's over. Mm. And that, I, I mean, I saw it with pretty much everything we've discussed of yours and I'm oh, not good. just saying to be nice. <laughs> I'm being really honest where you're just like, wow, it gets you, it interests you. Um what I want to ask you also about writing is obviously when you've written a film or a piece and it comes out of your hands, it stops being your baby so much and it goes to somebody else. Do you find yourself looking at it thinking, God, you know, they've totally changed it? Or do you find yourself, is that a problem if, say, a massive change has been made to your work or is it something you have to accept will happen? Well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's standard procedure. Obviously, especially as a collaborative medium. So everybody is working together and hopefully together to create the best vision that all of those ideas can ultimately create. So, yeah, that's absolutely part of the process. And, um, you know, one of the things that um, that I've been doing is working with other authors to create uh, you know, to write prose versions of stories of mine that are the version of the story that then if that gets made into a movie and they change it, the prose version is still going to be what the original story was from, you know, my perspective. So, um, you know, changes are inevitable. I mean, the special had some changes that were made to it. Um, but if you read the book that it's based on, you know, obviously that's that version of it. And, um, and so, yeah, I've got a bunch of things that are kind of in that state and part of it, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I can't remember whether it was, it was one of the, um, noir writers like Dashiell Hammett, um, I think who was asked by a reporter, are you upset that Hollywood has ruined all of your books? And his response was, they haven't ruined my books. They're sitting on the shelf right there, you know, and it's, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, that perspective was kind of like, yeah, that's true. There that thing is. And so that's part of what um, I've done with a lot of different things and uh, try to create some intellectual property that the script can be based on. Um, and, you know, it's not always going to be the case. And um, sure, you know, you're going to be, things are going to get changed. Uh, things change just because of, well, now we have to recast this role and we can't get somebody who fits what the script says. So it's got to be that, you know, and those kinds of things are going to change it as well. I mean, the script isn't the movie, after all, you know. Um, I mean, people don't read screenplays as a separate thing from the movies, not usually, right? Um, and so, you know, you have to understand, it's like saying the, the blueprint is not the house. Um, you're making these decisions, and then you're going to go and live in the house or, you know, or see the house. That's a very different kind of thing. So that's part of the process. 
And different kinds of writing have different levels of um, control for writers and so on. I mean, on stage, uh, and I've written a couple of plays, and I have one that's uh, published and has been performed, um, you know, on stage, the actors have to say every line in the script exactly as it is. You don't change a stage play. And, um, and so if you're a writer and you want to have that kind of control, well, then that's the medium that you're going to work in, you know. Um, and as a novelist, I still run into things, you know, my first uh, book, my kid's book, the editor who read the book said, this is great. I love it. The first thing you need to do is add 10,000 words. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's like, well, uh, what 10,000 words, you know? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and the editor explains, well, because these are the conditions for what we do professionally. This is the size this needs to be. This is what you need to do in the story. And we need to change, you know, this little bit or that little bit or whatever. And so, you know, you're still going through that process. I mean, I was so thankful for everything that I went through when um, that book was published because the whole team made me look so great with all of the editorial work. I mean, fixing everything in my writing to make it, you know, be perfect because that's what what we're trying to do. That's the collaboration, you know, and uh, and so yeah, there's definitely benefits like that. But I mean, people are going to tell the story that they want to tell. People are going to have different reactions, and so you know, when you're working with a director, a director is going to be with an actor who's an actor is going to say, I don't understand this motivation, you know, this way. So let's do this differently and, and so on. And again, it just goes back to that's the nature of it. If that's not for you, um, you know, believe it or not, you still have access to a global audience. You can write whatever you want and post it on a personal website and you can have complete control. So, um, you know, if that's what you're interested in, then you can certainly do that. If, on the other hand, you want to have this other level of professional achievement or, you know, you want to make it into a career, then, yeah, there's a lot of different rules that, um, you know, are involved. So interesting. I've always liked to ask this question of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember once asking Eric Roberts and he gave me a very interesting wild <laughs> answer. I feel me wanted to create uh, or a TV series, which I still think you should do, which mm. is uh, hopefully won't come and kill me on copyright. But it was the idea <laughs> of having a female president. He'd be the first gentleman. But he'd mm. also be an art thief at the same time. <laughs> away with it. I still think you should make. <laughs> so the, the question I, thought I always ask is if you could work on anything or you could create anything, what would it be? I, I love that question. And I'm sorry to say I can't tell you because uh, it is a, it is something that I do have that's very specific and specific it is. The thing that I want to do um, is so very specific that I can't say what it is because, you know, it's a it's a very well known um, thing. And, uh, you know, and I have a real vision for it. And so, um, and, you know, so there it is. Uh, and who knows whether I'll ever get enough juice to pull it off. I mean, that's really what, you know, that's really what it is about. 
when you're working in this in this industry in this position is can you get enough and i call it juice power to do what it is that you want to do you know i have things that um uh, that i think would be perfect projects for very specific filmmakers and i know that where i am right now i don't have the opportunity to get a meeting with that filmmaker to say, here's a thing that I think would work for you. On the other hand, I do have the power to say, Denise, can you get this script to Barbara Crampton? And, you know, can we can we get that going? And uh, and that worked out. And, you know, I've got a couple of other things that are going and, you know, that follow that process. Um, but it's a matter of degree. And this other thing that I'm talking about is just a gigantic, uh, it would be a gigantic undertaking. It would probably be, you know, practically the rest of my career. And uh, so anyway, fingers crossed. We'll see. Um, you know, hopefully something will break through bigger and I'll get some opportunity to do some of the other bigger things that I uh, that I want to do. I'll keep my fingers crossed you on whatever it is. I'll <laughs> just say, can I have, I'll just say when it happens, can I have an exclusive? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. I would love to uh, come back and talk to you uh, about it if it ever gets to that point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if you could give, I mean, you've kind of already done it, but if you could give any advice to someone who wants to go into your field of work, what would it be? Don't. <laughs> um and i i mean that you know uh i really do mean that um the difference is that you know it's if you have to do it then there's nothing that's going to stop you but if you think like when i got my graduate degree in screenwriting when i got my master's um in screenwriting there were a number of fellow students who thought, you know, who had read stories about screenplays selling for a million dollars. And I'm going to go to this film school and I'm going to learn how to write a screenplay and I'm going to sell it for a million dollars. And this is going to be awesome. And they found out very quickly that that's not at all what it's like. And, you know, and they went back to, uh, you know, being an auto mechanic or whatever it is. And if that's you, and you can give that up in that way, then you're not cut out for this. Um, if, on the other hand, you know, you, like I say, have to do it, uh, and that's what motivates you, that's what you think about all the time, that's what you're trying to do all the time, then that then there's nothing that's going to stop you. Um, I remember that um, I had a class at UCLA uh, and it was taught by Peter Goober, who is a producer, you know, well-known for all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But, yep. but Bat Batman was uh, yeah. the, the big thing that he was doing at the time, uh, the original Michael Keaton Batman. And um, on the first day of class, and it was a class on producing, and on the first day of class, he came in and he said, all right, listen to me. All of you leave right now. There are no jobs. There is no room. There is no way you're getting into this business. It's full and the line is as long as it's, that's not going to happen. And then he stopped and everybody sat there 
and nobody left. And he said, okay, now that we have that out of the way, let's get started. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then we had the class on all of the crazy stuff. But I mean, that's really, that is the reality. Um, if you think about uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, has said several times in interviews that he has, I don't know what it is, it's like 15 or 20 screenplays that he has written that have never been made that are projects that he devoted months and months and sometimes years of his life to working on that aren't made. So what makes you think that you're going to step in and say, hey, you know, those other 20 things that <laughs> that you spent all that time on? Yeah, yeah I, I'm going to give you this and you're going to do it. Well, I mean, it takes a certain kind of thinking to think that you think that's possible. But if that's you, then, yeah, then maybe you have uh, what it takes to to make it. But if you don't, yeah, it's it is completely unforgiving. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I've been at it. I mean, listen to how long I've been doing what I've been doing and you see how far I've made it. Uh, you know, I mean, it's there's no explanation for this versus somebody else who writes something that gets into the hands of some producer and ends up selling, getting made into a movie and they win the Oscar for it, you know, I mean, and then they have that career. So that's, there's a great degree of kind of chance to it that also adds a lot of heartache, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally get where you're coming from because I remember when I was interviewing Caroline Bliss who played, uh, Miss Moneypenny uh, mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. uh, two Bond films. I was, she's changed her career now, but I was saying to her, how about the fact that you have to handle an awful lot of rejection, that sort of field? Yeah. Because she now works in something very different to that, that deals with people's sort of health and well-being. And she was sort of saying, yeah, it's this this thing where you have to take a hit. And it's it's interesting to see the people who've shifted out of, that I've interviewed or, or met at things, who've shifted out being into the entertainment industry, going to other things, simply because either maybe things didn't work out the way they wanted or they, right. or they decided they wanted to make a change. What I do like, Mark, is you've been refreshingly honest. Mm -hmm. You've not been one of these people who's just gone, yeah, it'd be great, it'd be brilliant. Yeah, you know, we'll all be playing the same <laughs> which is part which is partly why I was interested when we were talking about the the gap. I wanted to know what had been the filler between sort of you doing something, going mm. into, a, into an area of work, because far too many people, what's the, the the joke you always hear? This person was overnight success, and you hear like an actor or a musician going, oh, I spent 20 years working at this yeah. thing. I was not an overnight success. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things that, for me, making a decision about going into teaching specifically was totally about self-preservation from the standpoint of, first of all, I mean, I'll be honest, teaching is an incredible schedule. I mm -hmm. get summers off. I have a month off at Christmas. Um, I'm in the classroom for a few hours each week. I have the work that I have to do outside the classroom. That's true. But when I'm in the classroom, I'm teaching film. I'm, I'm teaching students how to watch um, you know, Stanley Kubrick films or Brian De Palma films or, uh, you know, John Carpenter films. When we're in screenwriting, I am screening films that have great scripts and we're reading those and analyzing those and so on. I'm helping myself. I'm teaching myself 
every time I go, you know, uh, up to the podium, so to speak, and give another lecture, I'm learning something new as well. And it's great security. Uh, you know, it's benefits, it's income, steady. If I was, you know, I mean, I have friends who are trying to do the same thing that I'm doing down in Los Angeles. And being, I mean, the reality of being a writer trying to get hired on open writing assignments, okay, get to get paid to write something is the call goes out and <clears throat> all of the writers in town who potentially could be on that project. So it's a, it's a horror project and the producer has an idea of something, you know, and they're going to call in all the writers. So here come all of the horror writers come in and they all pitch their take on this particular idea. And the producers have meetings with all of those writers and then they narrow it down and then they say, you guys, you know, or you writers develop something a little farther with your take and then it gets narrowed down. And this process could go on for six months. You're not getting paid for that. You're going to meeting after meeting, trying to get the job comes down to two people and they say, not you. Well, you know, you've just spent six months trying to get a job that you didn't get. And then you're going to go and do that again. If, if that was the situation I was in, there would be a different kind of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, necessity. Like, you know, you, you have to get these jobs. You have to do something because I'm very comfortable in my existence with my teaching career, with my schedule and so forth. It gives me all this time to do these things. It's why I have so many things that I've written. And, um, you know, so I wouldn't trade that for anything. Sure, it's taken me longer probably because of that. Uh, but, um, you know, at the same time, I, I wouldn't be very comfortable wondering, can I pay my rent next month? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you really have to be at a very particular level before you can stop worrying about that. You know, if your sole income is coming from writing, man, you know, you got to get a big paycheck to last you a long time because the next one might not be as big or might not be as soon. So it's a very, uh, again, very difficult kind of thing to face and uh you know you want to be realistic about those issues because for me anyway i think it really affects my ability to be creative and uh i certainly don't want to you know spoil that and i'm going to ask what what have you got in the works is there anything you'd like to promote or mention or uh, well, I've got a lot of things that are going on, um, you know, scripts that have been optioned uh, by producers. Um, <clears throat> one project uh, called The Black Jar Man, uh, which uh, producer director uh, team <clears throat> has, uh, they, they've optioned. And they've made a bunch of other stuff. They're busy with some other films that they're making. And, you know, so we still hope that this is going to get off the ground, um, but they've got that one. Um, another, uh, let's see, another project. Let's see, I can't talk about that one just yet, but another script that was optioned. And then one that just got optioned uh, is based on my stage play, The Deception of Catherine Vasque. 
And uh, that was optioned by producer for a particular director. Uh, they're having a great deal of success with a short film that they made called Who Wants Dessert? Um, that's been really tearing up the festival circuit and winning all kinds of awards. She just won, the director just won Best Director uh, at a festival where I was two weeks ago. <clears throat> and so that's going, um, and hopefully they'll be shooting that in the spring. And then um, I have, uh, I just won top prize at Shriekfest again with a screenplay called In the Scrape. Um, and I've sent that out to a few places. Uh, so I've got, there's a particular actor that I really hope responds to uh, the script because I think they would be great in the lead role. And, um, you know, so we'll see if that uh, comes together. But I mean, all of those, you know, all of those things are, again, a gamble to a certain degree. You know, you send it to somebody. And um, I mean, I've been told by, you know, obviously by two different readers about the same script. This is brilliant. This is terrible. I mean, it, it's a question, you know, it's taste. You have to get the right person on the right day in the right mood. And and then maybe, you know, you get a yes. Um, but uh, anyhow, and so then I've got, a, of course, lots of other things that are uh, written that I would like to see produced. And, you know, we just kind of see, depending on who you meet and, uh, you know, what they might be looking for. I mean, I'm always sending stuff out, contacting people, you know, watching stuff, contacting directors. It's one of my favorite things to do is when I see a great movie and I contact the director and I say, I absolutely love your movie. I really would love it if you would do something of mine. I've got something that I think fits. And, you know, and then it's so nice when they respond. I'm interested. What do you got? And um, and then, you know, sometimes is for me. Or, no, I'm not interested in going this direction, you know, or whatever it happens to be. But you've got something going, you know, you've got a relationship, you've planted a seed, maybe they think of you for something else in the future, you know. Um, but I wouldn't be able to do that, I think, without without some of the success that I've had, of course, with Jacob's wife and, uh, you know, especially Jacob's wife. <clears throat> so that's very recognizable right now. And that's that's nice to be able to use that as a as an intro you know um so to put this to put the subject line in my email from the writer of jacob's wife uh usually gets it read you know so we we have an interesting sign off uh which is that we <laughs> think we've been talking enough celluloid codswallop uh, and <laughs> i cannot thank you enough for this matt i've really really I'm, I'm hoping you've enjoyed it but i've oh, really yeah. really enjoyed this it's been incredibly interesting to hear about how you do things, the things you've worked on and the, and the advice you, you can give people. And I just cannot thank you enough for doing this. So thank oh. you so, so much. No, thank you very much. It's been a really enjoyable uh, conversation. And, you know, I'm sorry that we didn't get to all the other things that were on your uh, advanced questions list. Uh, you know, so maybe there's a second show at some point in the future. Absolutely. I would <laughs> definitely love that. That would okay. be great. So, All right. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you.